Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. I have been crazy busy of late, so we have been a bit slow on some new podcasts, but I am very much hoping to get back on track shortly. Uh, we have some really interesting guests lined up. I just need to find the time to record them, but hopefully that will happen very very soon. Uh, instead, today we have two other podcasts where I was the guest, and both of them are talking about basically the same subject. So uh, I thought it would be good to combine them. The dis- even though the discussions are on the same topic, they actually come at them in very different ways. So it's it's actually not going to be very repetitive to listen to both of them. Uh, first up, I was a guest yet again on the Daily Beasts podcast, The New Abnormal with Andy Levy, uh, discussing the recent House Oversight Committee's hearing about the Twitter files. The focus of that discussion is how the oversight committee's hearing went, uh, with the too long didn't read version being not particularly well, <laughs> but you can listen to that to hear why. Uh, following that, we have a podcast from Tech Policy Press uh, with Justin Hendricks, and that was uh, more of a panel discussion moderated by Justin with myself, Shoshana Weissman from R Street, and Darren Linville from Clemson University. On that podcast, we are also talking about congressional hearings and the Twitter files, but the conversation is really quite different from what I discussed with Andy. Uh, In the Tech Policy Press podcast, we had uh, a discussion more about what we can actually learn from the Twitter files, what should be the limits of government involvement in social media companies, and whether or not there was actually any reasonable middle ground on the issue. Uh, And you can take a guess where I stand on that, or rather just keep listening and you will find out. All right, let's get started. Uh, First up with the new abnormal from The Daily Beast with Andy Levy. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. Hi, I'm Danielle Moody, former educator and recovering lobbyist. But today I'm an unapologetic woke commentator on America's threats to democracy. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try and make sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Hello, and welcome to another Sunday bonus episode of The New Abnormal. We thank you so much for being here. Today we have an extra special episode with Mike Masnick, who's the founder and editor of the blog Tech Dirt and the CEO of the Copia Institute. And he's going to talk to us all about the Twitter hearings that were held in Congress this week. But first, let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some clips? Hell yeah. Clips, yeah. Where are the clips? All right, that's that's the enthusiasm I like to hear. Okay, so the kids like to use this term capping, like that they're, you know giving some cover to say something nice about somebody. And um, one Tucker Carlson is going to do that for George Santos here. George Santos told other people out loud, and CNN can exclusively confirm this, that he had a volleyball scholarship, perhaps the most coveted credential in collegiate sports. But he didn't. It was all a facade. 
It was a tissue of lies constructed to deceive the American people. There was no volleyball scholarship. There was not a single dollar of volleyball scholarship. George Santos made it all up out of whole cloth, out of thin air. George Santos is an ersatz volleyball player, a fraud, a ghoul. People voted for this man believing he had played collegiate volleyball on a scholarship, and he hadn't. And yet tonight, ladies and gentlemen, this thief of volleyball glory strides the halls of the United States Congress unimpeded by law enforcement. It's like another insurrection. And by the way, we are hearing tonight, we can't confirm this, but we'll continue our investigation in George Santos. There are reports tonight that he did not actually work at Citibank. He did not work at Citibank. No volleyball scholarship, never worked at Citibank. What percentage of the people who voted for George Santos under false pretenses would have done so had they known he never played volleyball and never worked at Citibank. We can only guess, obviously a very small percentage. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who I used to know and used to be kind of friendly with, is a giant piece of shit. <laughs> and I don't really know <laughs> how else to say it. Like, I don't, he just, he is literally one of the worst people in America. Like, there's no point even getting outraged about this because it's so stupid. But the idea that, like, he picks up on the volleyball thing and acts like that's what people care about that George Santos lied. I, I mean, it's so obvious the response to this that I don't even want to give it beyond that, but it's just, he's a giant piece of shit. I don't know what else to say about Tucker Carlson. Do you know those like memes that go around and they're like, if you could get rid of one person, right? Uh, <laughs> and like all of, you know, their entire resume, their entire thing. So you have in the box, you put Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mitch McConnell, and Kevin McCarthy. You can only get rid of one. Right. Every single time I'm choosing Tucker Carlson, because I think that he is more dangerous than any of those people. Why? Because he has the highest rated fucking show in his time block on Fox News. And it is amazing to me because I continue as I listen to his bullshit. I remember him when he used to wear his fucking bow ties. This is the guy that 60 some odd million people are listening to. Right. That are thinking to themselves, oh, yeah, what's the big deal about George Santos? Oh, I don't know. The fact that he's lied about everything, including where his campaign financing was coming from. Yeah. Right. Including the fact that, you know, on one of our country's worst days, 9-11, that he used that right to pull out the heartstrings of his constituents. Oh, I lost my mother too, knowing how many people on Long Island lost Someone. I'm just so fucking sick and tired of Tucker Carlson. I'm so fucking sick and tired of these people and their bullshit and their fucking life. Like he's more outraged about fucking M&Ms and their boots than he is about anything else. He's a, he is. He's a giant, heaping, steaming piece of shit. Why do you do this to me, Jesse? Why? <laughs> Why are you like it's, it's this? Ju it's, ju it's just going to get worse. See, what I was going to say is like, whereas Andy was at a loss for words and couldn't <laughs> even name all the ways he's a piece of shit, whereas Tucker, the difference is, is that he knew there was a lot more of the story. He just obscures it intentionally to skew the facts. There's a difference, people. Learn your media. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have a reoccurring segment on this show. It's called What the Fuck is Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana even fucking talking about? Well, what we're going to hear from the president tonight, Jesse, are, are words. That's all they are, words. Words 
on a teleprompter. Hmm. As opposed to every other state of the union that at the <laughs> modern age. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. It's like Camelot all over again. <laughs> as, as opposed to the words that he pulls out of thin air and tries to string together in a fucking sentence. <laughs> that's, that's some alchemy right there, Danielle. Don't mock it. Oh, my God. He's another one that is not a dumb guy. But, but, Are you sure? But... No, he has numerous uh, decorated degrees, yes. He does not have an IQ of 60. He just pretends he has an IQ of 60, which is obviously far worse. Like, you can't help it if you have an IQ of 60. To be a not dumb person and to be an educated person and to act like you are some kind of good old country boy— for votes and for whatever is just, he is just so pathetic. Like all these people are just so pathetic. He graduated Vanderbilt magna cum laude. Not a stupid person, but just plays one in Congress. Okay. So now we're going to have a tale of two Congress people at the Twitter hearings. Up first, I'm going to bring us the worst. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene by owning herself by spouting a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that's probably going to get her a slander lawsuit. Mr. Roth, as the head and trust of safety at Twitter, your ability, or should I say inability, to remove child porn. Now, here's something that disgusts me about you. In your doctoral dissertation entitled Gay Data, you argued that minors should have access to Grindr an adult male gay hookup app. Minors? Really? You know, Elon Musk took over Twitter and he banned 44,000 accounts that were promoting child porn. You permanently banned my Twitter account, but you allowed child, child porn all over Twitter. Twitter had become a platform, you said, connecting queer young adults. You also wrote on Twitter in 2010, can high school students ever meaningfully consent to sex with their teachers? In 2021, while you were the director of trust and safety on Twitter, an underage boy and his mother announced a lawsuit against Twitter because because Twitter was benefiting from and refused to remove a lewd video featuring this boy and another minor. That is repulsive. Well, she makes a good case. <laughs> if only, if only of any that, of that was, was true. True, yeah. Now, she is not playing a dumb person. No, she just is. She just yeah. is. I pray to God that she gets sued. I really do. Mm-hmm. I know that there was a Republican, I forget the name, who came out and apologized on her behalf, because apparently that's what Republicans do these days, or apologize on behalf of Marjorie Taylor Greene for her behavior, for her under-researched self. I just wonder what it must be like to be on her staff. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I used to work on the Hill, and I'm just really curious as to what goes on behind those closed doors. Is QAnon the only thing allowed to pull up on their computers? I wonder. She's an embarrassment. I mean, she is. I just, I guess I just sort of assume that her staff are like mini hers. Yeah, I think that's who fed that to her, sadly. Like, I get the fact that, like, there are staffers who work for Congress people who, you know, sit there and go like, oh, God, what what is he saying now or what did she just do my guess is her staff is not like that they probably think 
just like her. I don't, I could be wrong. I just, I don't know how you could work for someone that batshit and not also be batshit. Well, seeing as we recently learned that her quote unquote intern, Milo Yiannopoulos, uses her address as his address, uh, I think we know some answers here. <laughs> Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Speaking of people who were pro underage sex, almost like the Gruber calls are coming from inside the house. It's almost. I wish somebody would pick up. Yeah. Okay. Unlike usual, I'm going to play us out on a happy note. Here's one representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, absolutely just demolishing at that hearing. Navarroli, let's talk about something real. I'd like to show you a tweet posted by former President Trump about my colleagues and I on July 14th, 2019. It says in part, quote, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it's done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy as quickly to work out free travel arrangements. A day or two after that, uh, Donald Trump publicly uh, incited you know, violence at a rally, uh, targeting four congresswomen, including myself, saying, go back to where you came from. Uh, Ms. Navarroli, as I understand it, you were uh, the most senior member of Twitter's content moderation team, or a senior member of Twitter's content moderation team when this was posted. Um, as part of your responsibilities, did you review this tweet? Yes, it was my team's responsibility to review these tweets. And what did you conclude? My team made the recommendation that for the first time we find Donald Trump in violation of Twitter's policies and use the public interest interstitial. For the first time? Yes. And at the time, Twitter's policy included a specific example when it came to banned abuse uh, against immigrants as in they specifically included the phrase, go back to your country or go, or go back to where you came from, correct? Yes, that was specifically included in the content moderation guidance as and an you, example. You brought this up to the vice president of trust and safety, Del Harvey, correct? I did, yes. And she overrode your assessment, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, and something interesting happened after she overrode your assessment. A day or two later, Twitter seemed to have changed their policies, didn't they? Yes, that trope, go back to where you came from, was removed from the content moderation guidance as an example. So Twitter changed their own policy after the president violated it um, in order to potentially accommodate his tweet? Yes. Thank you. Um, so much for bias against right wing on Twitter. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. And like, I give her a lot of credit for remaining as calm as she did in the face <laughs> of just this mass stupidity sitting around her. And I, I honestly don't know how she did it. We don't give enough props to AOC. We don't give enough props to these very astute, very compassionate, passionate patriots who go into this job every single day surrounded by people who have incited violence, who they don't know, you know, what they will do, who have they've had to hire, I mean, file a restraining order against, right? Like she had to file a restraining order against Marjorie Taylor Greene for stalking her around Congress. But she continues to show up and work under duress, right? As many of the members of color and Democrats in general are doing. Because of these Republicans, my bravo, AOC deserves every single bit of applause. She is a master's class in how to present during a hearing. And something she didn't say there, I know she's brought it up before, Trump saying that she and the others 
should go back to where they came from. She was born in the Bronx. She was born 20 miles from the hospital he was born in. <laughs> Let's just keep that in mind. <laughs> Literally the same city as him. So it's just, it's, it's unreal. And to your point, Danielle, Warren Bobert went on a radio interview, radio, quote unquote radio, this week and bragged that she's actually not allowed to take the elevator in Congress anymore because of how much she harassed Elon Omar, which is just fucking pathetic. Yeah, that's what they are, is fucking pathetic. House Republicans thought it was a great idea to hold hearings about Twitter this past week, thinking they would shock the world by showing how the social media company worked with Democrats and the deep state to conspire against conservatives. But let's just say that uh, maybe didn't go as planned. Joining me now to discuss is Mike Masnick, founder and editor of the great Tech Dirt blog at techdirt.com and CEO of the Copia Institute. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Always happy to talk to you. So I'm not sure I've seen something backfire this spectacularly since I had a 1973 Plymouth Fury. How did this happen? This was supposed to be sweet revenge time for the new House majority. A lot of people seem to assume that the Twitter files revealed something that they very clearly did not and actually, for the most part, disproved. And therefore, they just kind of went with their belief that it must have said what it what it said and then decided <laughs> to hold an entire hearing assuming that it would confirm the thing that they thought it said but which it actually disproved and therefore in the hearing the witnesses were able to once again disprove the thing that the twitter files disproved it's sort of this weird cognitive dissonance something delusion i'm not i'm not entirely sure <laughs> how it's playing out in the minds of people but the incredible thing is that i still see lots of people insisting that it did prove things and and people are expecting like criminal indictments to come down because of this and everything about it was the opposite of what they seem to think you know happened yeah you mentioned the twitter files and that was of course the various tranches of things that elon musk released to various <laughs> I don't know if the word reporter is even <laughs> accurate anymore for people like Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss. And that sought to prove that under the previous ownership, Twitter had done what the hearing was supposed to lay out, that the company worked with Democrats, worked with the FBI to sort of conspire against Republicans and conservatives. But then, as you point out, what we learned in the hearing was that this was all done by Twitter in a very bipartisan manner. And for example, a fun thing that we learned, and that is now in the congressional record, is that when Chrissy Teigen <laughs> put up a tweet calling Trump a pussy ass bitch, the White House then contacted Twitter and asked them to take down the tweet because it was a derogatory statement directed at the president. This is, again, this is exactly the kind of things conservatives were braying about Democrats doing. And as you said, it was the sort of thing that Matt Taibbi in particular, tried to point out in the Twitter files that Democrats had been doing and working with Twitter to do. And all this showed was that all of that stuff was totally incomplete. Yeah. In the very first Twitter files, Taibbi had mentioned that the White House had sent requests to take down content. And a lot of people, including myself, had highlighted that particular tweet and then noted that he never in any of the, I don't know how many Twitter files there have been since, 17, 20, 25, who knows, that they've never 
showed any examples of that. In fact, they've sort of very clearly cherry picked only examples where Democrats sent in information. And here was a a pretty clear example of not just, you know, a request for a takedown, but an obviously silly one. Like all of the examples that have been shown of requests for reviewing the content, not necessarily taking down, but reviewing the content has been things like Hunter Biden nude pictures, (laughs) which there's a reason for that, or like election misinformation where like People telling people to vote on the wrong day after Election Day, for example, you know, things where there is an argument whether or not the government should be doing that. That's a separate question, which we could discuss. But, you know, there is an element of of reason behind why they would be sent. And they're all of the examples shown so far have been basically like you should look at these to see if they violate your policies, not you must take this down. Whereas the example of the Christy Teigen tweet was clearly just purely ego driven by the president being upset about being called a pussy ass bitch, which is right. I mean, that that was just clearly she's being mean to me. Yes. You know, and of course, it started with him being mean to her. You know, right. That was a response tweet to him mocking John Legend and his potty mouthed wife, which sort of begs for that kind of response. Yes. So, yeah, that's sort of a fuck around and find out situation. Yeah. And then so that's the thing. But, you know, how come the Twitter files never revealed that or any of the other examples of the Trump White House or of Republicans, you know, making similar requests to Twitter? You know, if if it's really this thing that was happening across the board, which it appears to be like, let's talk about it, but let's have an accurate picture, not a cherry picked one. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Rolling Stone came out with a report like the day after the hearings, quoting people as saying that, you know, the Chrissy Teigen thing wasn't an isolated incident, that Twitter, in fact, had a huge file of requests for action from both Democrats and Republicans. And a former Trump official told Rolling Stone, quote, it was strange to me when all of these investigations were announced because it was all about the exact same stuff that we had done when Trump was in office. It was normal. Right. Like he literally said this was just business as usual. Yes. Yes. That part is is incredible, too, because the people who were you know, hosting this hearing had to know that. Right. The Republicans who demanded this hearing and who held it, their names didn't pop up in the Rolling Stone report. But Kevin McCarthy did. Clearly, Republicans know that they've made these requests as well. And so to put this into a congressional hearing and thinking that their own actions were not going to come out during the hearing just seems like they have just this weird blind spot to recognizing how their own actions are going to come back and play out for them. Yeah. And then, I mean, again, this was a hearing that was meant to be about Twitter conspiring against conservatives. And then another thing we learned, courtesy of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who questioned a former Twitter content moderator named Annika Collier-Navaroli, is that when President Trump literally violated Twitter rules by tweeting that uh, AOC and others in the squad should go back where they came from, we learned that this language was actually in the in Twitter's content moderation guidelines as an example of something that is forbidden on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Navaroli testified that she assessed that the tweet was in violation, which seems like the easiest call in the world, and that Twitter then overrode her assessment and also within a few days 
took that phrase out of the guidance. Yes. And again, this hearing was meant to be about Twitter conspiring against conservatives. And here it is helping a Republican president. Yeah. Bending over backwards to not only ignore its own rules, but to change the rules to make it look like they were they were playing by the rules in order to help the president insult a bunch of Democratic congressional representatives after very obnoxiously in a clearly, you know, racist manner, telling them to go back to where they came from again. And there are many other examples of this, but this is one that happened to come out in the in the hearing of Twitter absolutely bending over backwards to help conservatives, which is like the exact opposite of what the hearing and tons of people keep insisting was actually happening. And the the incredible thing was, you know, you basically didn't have any Republican even mention that after it came out. They just kept insisting that this whole panel was proof of conspiring against Republicans. Yeah. And I I always just like to point out that AOC was born in the Bronx. Not only is it, you know, a nasty racist thing to say, it's not even factually accurate. To be fair, and and I can't believe I'm about to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh We'll edit this out. Don't worry. (laughs) To be fair, there were people who, when Trump tweeted that, there were people who defended it as not racist because he was saying he meant that they should go back to their districts and fix them as opposed to the the countries (laughs) where he might have believed that they came from. I don't know that that is true. I'm not even sure he knew what he was saying at the time. Yeah. But yes, it was clearly a very derogatory statement that he. Yeah. Famously, when you tell someone of Latin descent to go back where they came from or any person of color to go back where they came from, you mean their hometown in America. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Historically, that has definitely been the meaning. The main focus of the hearing was supposed to be like, like the thing that supposedly generated this hearing was Twitter's decision to take down the tweet from the New York Post that linked to its story about Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. And I guess in between people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene whining about the treatment of their own stupid (laughs) tweets, there were some actual questions about that. But I also feel like that didn't go any better than the other stuff. No. Again, this was all clear if you actually read what was in the Twitter files, like what what was actually revealed by Taibbi and, and some of the others, not their descriptions of it, which were incredibly misleading, was the sort of weird attempt at misdirection and certainly not what a lot of people believe those files said, but what everything showed and what the Twitter executives who were the witnesses for the panel confirmed again and have said in the past is that it was the wrong decision. They admitted that 24 hours after they made the decision. Yes. And that it was not driven by a push from the Biden campaign. It was not driven by a push from the FBI. It was their own decision. It was mostly based on, you know, and this was sort of mentioned at the hearing, but they didn't go into detail on it. But when that New York Post story came out that morning, I remember certainly lots of people were coming out and saying, hey, this looks sketchy. There were all sorts of concerns with it. I remember like, you know, Thomas Ridd, who's a cybersecurity guy, wrote a whole long thread sort of calling into question a whole bunch of things about it and why everybody should be pretty careful about it. I'm sure there were some others who did that as well. And James Baker, who was the deputy general counsel who was on the hearing, he was saying, you know, we just saw people on Twitter calling out some inconsistencies 
there were later stories that came out that certainly supported that where, you know, Fox News refused to run that story. They had it and they refused to right. run it. And some other publications also, I believe, refused to run it until the New York Post did it. You know, the person who actually wrote the story claimed that he asked for his byline to be taken off of it because he didn't he didn't even feel confident in it. I think the person whose byline was put on it was not a reporter even or like it was like a former Hannity staffer or something like that, I think. So there were all of these questions about it. And basically, you know, exactly what you would expect happened, which was that, you know, Twitter started reviewing it. And what the Twitter files revealed was they had this sort of internal discussion about it with people arguing in both directions and saying, you know, does this really violate our policies? Should we do something? And going back and forth and nobody having a clear answer. And, and again, like this is all in the heat of the moment. People have to make a decision relatively quickly. And eventually they just made a decision that like, we're going to put this into the hacked materials policy. And then 24 hours later decided that was a mistake and reversed it. That is is how content moderation works, right? I mean, oftentimes you have to make a decision very quickly with, you know, limited information and you're sort of dealing with what, what you have. And eventually, you know, you might reverse that decision or change it as you get more information. It's a high profile situation, obviously, but it was one that it was totally understandable and had nothing to do with the government putting pressure or the Biden campaign putting pressure on it. This is all known. We've known this. We've known this for a long time. Right. And yet, you know, Republicans kept asking about it uh, and, and they kept insisting that this was proof of some horrible conspiracy. It was just wrong. And, and so, you know, and the witnesses said what they've said all along. There was no surprises. They just repeated exactly what they said, which is, look, it was a tough call. It was a wrong call. We, you know, did it based on the information we had at the time. And that was it. And it had nothing to do with any outside influence. Yeah. You know, I remember when the Twitter files first came out and, and this part of it was out there. I remember thinking, and look, I, I wasn't alone in this. Many, many people said this. As you just said, this is what you want content moderation to look like. I was like, oh, they actually had a very serious discussion about this yeah. and and listened to arguments from both sides. And, you know, and as you said, they made a decision in the heat of the moment. And look, it's a tough job. And, and I see it every day on Twitter. You know, someone will make a joke, but it has language that if it weren't a joke would right. look like it was encouraging suicide or self-harm or something. And they're like, I can't believe this joke got taken down. It's like, well, you know what? I get why it was taken down. Obviously, it should be put back up. And, they, you know, this should be flagged if you appeal it or whatever. And they should be able to someone, a human somewhere should be able to say, oh, OK, yeah, this had language similar to other stuff that we had to take down. But in this case, yes, you're it's clearly you're not trying to get someone to kill themselves or, right. or you're not interested in self-harm. But, yeah, it's it's a tough job. And Twitter has copped to that, as you said they have been consistent in the years since this happened in saying, yeah, we made a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, and it's it's even more than that, right? Because the thing that people have a lot of trouble sort of comprehending, I think, is, is also sort of the scale of this and the fact exactly. that you have, depending on the company, hundreds or thousands of people who have to make these decisions very, very quickly, where they're getting tons of these things being reported every minute. People don't have time to sit there and, and read the tweet and understand the context. Is this person joking? You know, is this an in-group situation? Is right. there additional context? Are they quoting a movie? Are they quoting a song? There's all of these different things. Instead, what you have to do, because you have, you know, let's say a thousand moderators, I'm not even sure how many Twitter had at the time, you know, you have to write these kind of clear rules that can just be applied by people all over the world 
and that can say, here's a very clear rule. Here's how I apply it. And you don't have like, you have to investigate, like, we're just a bunch of people joking. Exactly. They don't have time to do that. They have however many, 30 seconds, maybe to look at this, say, does it violate a rule? Yes, go, you know, that's it. And so mistakes are made. And most of those don't go up to the higher levels, right? It's only sort of the big serious situations that get escalated. So the, the Hunter Biden laptop story was one that did get escalated because it was obviously kind of a, a serious issue and they weren't letting that, that happen on the line. And then you have this discussion. And I think it's really important to note, I mean, you said that they had this sort of back and forth discussion, but the key thing that has come out is that not one bit of the discussion, not, not a single bit of the discussion suggests anything that was sort of politically motivated. Or the FBI. Right. There, there's no discussion of that. It was 100% like, you know, does this violate our rules? You know, is this like a Russian hack and leak kind of operation, which has happened and they're aware of it and it's right before the election? Like, should we be aware of this? Should we be careful about it? It had nothing to do with like, this will help one side. This will hurt another side. There was no political. It, it was a purely like, what is the right thing to do in this scenario kind of question? Yeah. And I, look, I, I'll move on. But I just want to say that I think erring on the side of caution is what you're always going to get from a company like Twitter. And then sure. you can appeal. And they can maybe in an appeal situation, take a little more time to look at it, hopefully, and maybe glean some context that they couldn't the first time, because as you said, right. there were, you know, maybe a thousand people as opposed to now when there's one person moderating <laughs> yes. content. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'll move on because I can talk about this all day. <laughs> In terms of the getting back to the hearing, I got to be honest, at a certain point, I just kind of tune out the stupidity. But I know you are a serious journalist, Mike <laughs> Masnick, and so you can answer this for me. Why did Lauren Boebert keep saying that Twitter had broken the law? <laughs> There's something in, in her mind that <laughs> there is there is this sort of conspiracy theory going around. And unfortunately, I just heard like a very famous venture capitalist say the same thing. I'm not even going to say who it is because it's so silly. There is this concept of like taking away someone's constitutional rights. It's uh, deprivation of constitutional rights is this theory that that has made the rounds in some crazed circles <laughs> is the, <laughs> the way I'll put it. This weird belief that an editorial decision is a deprivation of constitutional rights. That's wrong on so many levels that we don't right. even need to get into. But she seems to have bought into that sort of conspiracy theory that this decision to do that. The, the other argument that some people make, and the Federal Election Commission has already completely eviscerated this idea, is that it was like a, an in-kind contribution, not Boebert, but one of the other Republican questioners tried to make the argument that this was a, you know, effectively a campaign contribution to the Biden campaign, that it, it was worth more than the maximum campaign contribution. <laughs> you know, it was like asking, how much do you think it was worth to the Biden campaign to, to have this New York Post story censored? And again, like, you know, the evidence on that was that th this whole the whole controversy over this actually drove a lot more traffic to that New York Post story. But all of this is, its again, it's just wishful thinking. They've made up their interpretation of what happened. They've made up their interpretation of the laws, and they've decided that it must mean that that Twitter broke the law because Twitter engaged in its, its very clearly, you know, First Amendment constitutionally protected editorial decision making. And Representative Raskin made that point at the end where he, he said, basically, how would the Republicans feel if we did the same thing, if the Democrats did the same thing and called Fox News for Fox News executives into a hearing and demanded to know their editorial process and who did they put in the, on the air and who did they refuse to put on the air and how do they decide what their lead stories are? Like, 
everyone would see that as a very clear First Amendment problem because it's Congress interfering with, you know, the First Amendment editorial process of a private company. And yet that's that's what happened with this hearing. And by the way, as someone who used to work there, I can assure you that there's more fire in the Fox News thing than there was in the Twitter thing. I'm sure. So before I let you go, I want to switch parties for one section. Because I hadn't heard this, but I read it in in one of your pieces. Representative Cory Bush wants Twitter to be nationalized. It was a very, very strange thing. I mean, it was funny because like Raskin did a little bit of this, too. Not not he didn't talk about nationalizing it, but Representative Bush, she didn't quite say nationalized, but she did say like it should be like publicly owned and sort of publicly controlled or or something along those lines. And then she talked about the same phrase that is used on the Republican side of like it is the new public square and therefore it should be publicly owned and it should be, you know, publicly, I forget the exact phrase, but it, it basically implied that Twitter or whatever is considered the public square should be nationalized in some form or another. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's just as bad. <laughs> you can't, oh, God. You, you know, of course, if that happened, it would create so many problems because then they couldn't do any moderation at all. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. It's like, God. Has anyone thought through any of this? <laughs> <laughs> what a nightmare. I just, I want to let you know, I have the phrase new public square muted on Twitter. Yes, that is, that is the correct thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I got really tired of people saying that. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for walking us through all of this. And again, I'll direct everyone over to techdirt.com for some of the best writing that you will find on issues like this. Mike, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always fun. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. This podcast is a Daily Beast production with production by Jesse Cannon and Seamus Calder. Okay, that was The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast with Andy Levy. And now we have the Tech Policy Press podcast moderated by Justin Hendricks, again with myself, Shoshana Weissman, and Darren Linville, talking about a similar and related subject, but uh, in, a, in a very different way. So I think people will enjoy it as well, if you, especially if you liked the previous podcast. So here we go. Yeah. Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Elon Musk, the platform's new owner, says that Twitter is both a social media company and a crime scene. The crime he appears most concerned about is purported censorship by the tech firms, which he says has occurred at the U.S. government's direction. Musk, who claims he is leading a, quote, revolution against such practices, has given a small number of people access to internal Twitter documents, the so-called Twitter files, including emails and internal message board communications that, in their selective release, 
demonstrate executives at the firm engaging with politicians and federal agencies on a range of issues from COVID-19 to election disinformation. This week, there were two hearings in the House of Representatives on this subject, including a Committee on Oversight and Accountability hearing titled Protecting Speech from Government Interference in Social Media Bias, Part 1, Twitter's Role in Suppressing the Biden Laptop Story, and a hearing of the new Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government that was intended to, quote, discuss the politicization of the FBI and DOJ and attacks on American civil liberties. The hearing saw Republicans repeat their complaints about Twitter's handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story published in the New York Post in October 2020, and to pursue various conspiracy theories about President Biden and his administration. The House Oversight and Accountability hearing, in particular, saw Republicans badger former Twitter executives, including a particularly egregious rant by Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene against former Twitter head of trust and safety UL Roth that Robert Garcia, a Democrat from California, was forced to call out as homophobic and shameful. Florida Representative Anna Paulina Luna took such a toxic approach that Democrats implored the committee to follow rules of decorum and not to intimidate or threaten witnesses. Representative Katie Porter, a Democrat from California, called the entire hearing, quote, merely an exercise in misinformation and disinformation, a free-for-all hellscape. But it's not just on Capitol Hill where the censorship case is being made. These ideas are popular in some quarters of Silicon Valley, too. Mark Andreessen, co-founder and general partner of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, appeared on a Reason podcast this week where he suggested these issues should be grounds for impeachment. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, that's been happening. And, you know, the Twitter, every new drop of the Twitter files shows that that's what's, what's been happening, you know, in a, in, a, in a non-political world where we all just like read the Constitution, um, you know, this would be a constitutional crisis. You know, this would be the biggest story in the, in the country. There would be hearings. You know, there would be, you know, among other, you know, immediate impeachment proceedings. Like, you know, this, this would be a five alarm fire, right? Because obviously the government can't be allowed to do this. If we look past the conspiracy theories and legal gibberish, is there any there there? Should we pursue reforms and require greater transparency around the interaction between platforms and government? I invited three experts to discuss the issue. Shoshana Weissman, I'm at the R Street Institute, where I'm digital director and a policy fellow on regulatory issues. Uh, Darren Linville, I am an associate professor at Clemson University and co-director of the Media Forensics Hub here at Clemson. Mike Masnick, the founder of the TechDirt blog and the CEO of the Copia Institute. So I am so pleased to have the three of you here today. We're going to talk a little bit about government relationships with social media platforms, the extent to which we should be concerned about that. Of course, an ongoing topic of discussion this week on Capitol Hill and very much in the news media. I was struck by the words of Jonathan Turley uh, in his opening to the hearing yesterday. The Twitter files raise serious questions of whether the United States government is now a partner in what may be the largest censorship system in our history. So I think I'll start there. Uh, largest censorship system in our history. And what do we think? Uh, maybe Mike Masick, I'll throw it to you first. <laughs> uh, I think that's not just laughable, but backwards. <laughs> I think that, you know, Twitter and the rest of the Internet and social media and all of these tools have allowed for more speech than ever before in our history and more people to speak out and more people to hear the speech of others uh, than ever before in, in history. Uh, and 
the Twitter files showed absolutely nothing of the sort. I'm not sure which Twitter files uh, Turley is reading, but they're not the actual ones that have been presented. What it showed was a very, very standard, actually incredibly competent and thoughtful situation in which a company that hosts user speech has to decide uh, what it is going to allow and how to enforce its own rules, which is clearly First Amendment protected editorial functions. Uh, and there was nothing in the Twitter files to date. There could be more at some other point, but there's been nothing in the Twitter files to date that I think shows anything that goes anywhere near the level of censorship involving the government requiring a site or compelling uh, a private entity to take down speech. There's been no indications of that. The things that have been shown in terms of the FBI involvement tended to be what I would think of as mostly reasonable, uh, suggesting that sending over accounts and saying, do these violate your policies and being very explicit, in fact, in the emails that you can do with this what you want. Uh, we have spotted these things. We think they may violate your policies, but it is up to you. And Twitter then reviewing and sometimes listening to them and sometimes not and not facing any consequences for either either side of that. That is not censorship. That is uh, you know, just general notification and Twitter evaluating it under its own policies, which again is is perfectly First Amendment protected speech. I, there's no evidence in the in the Twitter files of anything coming even close to to what I think most people would define as actual censorship. And therefore, I have no idea where where Turley is coming from, other than that he's just very very confused about what the Twitter files actually showed. So I want to come back to perhaps that, that argument and uh, other people who have made that argument. But Shoshana, I'll maybe come to you. You just hosted a, a great event at R Street Institute that I thought was uh, filled with very reasonable perspectives on this question. But you said in your opening to that, I think most people on both the left and the right of the spectrum, even if it's on different issues, can agree that government at different times has abused its power towards disfavored groups. So when you look at the Twitter files, uh, do you see no cause for concern, cause for concern, cause for moderate concern? For sure. No, I really appreciate it. And that event was a long, long Shoshana process of nerding around this area. And like, I, I, I tend to agree with Mike as as always, except um, I, and it's also frustrating to kind of see some of the way Turley's gone with a lot of this stuff, because I used to love, love, love his work. Uh, before he found out uh, social media was a thing that could get him attention in his work. And I'm like, oh, this is not the Turley I used to know and love. But I think that like the concern is good. And the I think it's a bright spot in the Twitter files that people are refocusing. Wait a second. It's government coercion that could be a problem. And even if people see it as more of a problem in the Twitter files than I might, I think it's still good that they're focusing on like, wait, is there coercion? What level? Um, and starting to think through this stuff, because as always on someone of my view, I just think the focus needs to be on government, especially when you have congressmen during, I think that hearing and others saying, did you fire these employees that criticized me? You know, why did you allow this speech? That's the problem. Um, throughout these social media hearings, you've seen this, uh, you see you know, in certain cases, one agency of government tell a platform that they should keep something up because they're monitoring it. And another agency say, take that down because it's dangerous. And I'm not, you know, saying these platforms are like, oh, poor little things, but it is an unreasonable spot 
um, from a governance perspective to put them in, but you have to have a coherent theory of enforcement there that agencies should be able to figure out what the other one's doing. So like with the Twitter files, I think some a lot of it was overblown. I get the, the general concern, the vibes, and I'm glad that people are refocusing there because I think that's really productive for policy in this space. But it's also just been like an opportunity, you know, for clickbait as a lot of things. But give and take, I still am kind of glad people are coming to the conclusions they are just because I want the focus to be on what's the appropriate role for government and content moderation and people realizing maybe they need to step away from that. And I want to come back uh, to some of the ideas that were discussed at your event, especially uh, from Senator Loomis uh, and the bill that she put forward. Uh, Mike, you wrote approvingly of, I think, a similar bill put forward in the House that would essentially do its best to kind of draw some line or add some transparency between you know, what government is able to essentially direct social media companies to do. But, but Darren, I want to come to you because you've got a sort of different perspective on this. Uh, you found yourself a subject of the Twitter files, and I guess that gave you the opportunity to look at them closely. You essentially kind of come to this idea that perhaps they give us uh, a way of thinking about the role of external parties, including government agencies, in helping the platforms to do what they seem never to be able to do, which is to actually you know, enforce their own policies and procedures. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I was certainly concerned about a number of things I read in the in the Twitter files, but not at all the same things that Charlie is concerned about. You know, what, what concerned me is what I saw the the complete lack of of structure that the platforms have for working with outsiders, especially qualified outsiders that might come with a particular expertise or perspective or information that could be valuable to them. You know, I think that these relationships, I can see why the platforms might not want to seek them out, but it's definitely in society's best interest that the platforms work with outside perspectives because, you know, the government and the platforms can work to keep each other in check, just like, you know, other perspectives like like my own. The reason I was pulled into the Twitter files and, and my lab was pulled into the Twitter files was because we had been giving the, the Twitter information about accounts that we suspected were being run by the Russian Internet Research Agency. Uh, all of those accounts were suspended that we gave them um, over the years. It was hundreds of accounts. But, you know, we had genuine disagreements about whether or not to attribute those accounts to the Internet Research Agency. And I think that those disagreements can be healthy. I mean, you can see why the platforms wouldn't want to attribute something to the Internet Research Agency, to the, to Russia. It's just going to mean another story in the newspapers that will make them look bad and, you know, maybe drive more of their user base away. But having somebody there to call them out and engaging with them on these issues, I think, I think of course, this is, these, are, these are important. And there need to be ways that outsiders can communicate with the platforms. We need to expect it and even desire it. Mike, I want to come to you. Just when you play devil's advocate on the Twitter files in your mind, you know, looking at maybe some of the things that were discussed in the hearing this week, you know, the extent to which employees at these social media platforms might communicate with the FBI or uh, other government agencies in ways that are difficult to track. I mean, there was some discussion of the use of disappearing or encrypted messaging apps uh, for some of this communication. Uh, some of the communication does look extremely casual. Does any of that give you cause for concern? Uh, 
there, there are some elements that that could give cause for concern. To be honest, I expected to find a lot worse and to see a lot worse in the, in the Twitter files than, than actually came out. You know, I think that when you look at the details, though, each of those concerns, it shows pretty clearly that that Twitter was pretty careful. I, I do recognize that, yeah, there was some sort of you know casual communication, but that's kind of natural when you're dealing with someone on a on a regular basis that that kind of thing is going to happen. The the use of encrypted communications, as far as I understand it, and again, you know, I didn't work at, at Twitter, but from what I've seen, everything that has been presented about encrypted communications was for things that actually mostly required that sort of thing around information, intelligence information that that the FBI was sharing regarding foreign operatives. And so they had a special system set up in which, um, you know, the, the FBI could send that information in a in a secure manner to Twitter. And so, you know, to some extent, you know, I think that goes back to the point that Darren was just making. I actually think that, you know, one of the things that the Twitter files did show was that Twitter actually did have a bunch of these relationships set up and and Twitter had their, I forget exactly what it was called, but they had their sort of trust and safety council in which they were working with a number of outside groups and they had these other connections uh, and regular contact with government agencies, but they were very careful about it and very careful that it didn't reach that level that got to the Turley level of, of censorship or government intrusion into private uh, activities. And so, you know, the thing that's somewhat incredible to me is actually how how much better Twitter came out of this looking, if you actually read the stuff and understand it, like it felt like Twitter came out of it much better than than I would have expected in that they really sort of were balancing all of these very tricky issues. They were willing to talk to, to different organizations, uh, different, you know, civil society, different academics, uh, government agencies, but they were always very careful to make sure that in the end, it was their own decision making and their own process for determining these things. And I think that's actually commendable and something that I, I thought, you know, they came out of it looking really, really good for, for those who are actually who don't come in with a sort of preset determination of what the Twitter files must have said. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think that there are areas, as, as Shoshana brought up, like there are areas where there could be concern. And, and I actually, again, expected the FBI to be a little bit more engaged in, in trying to pressure the companies uh, and was actually somewhat pleasantly surprised that they weren't. I do think that there is a point that goes over the line where the government is trying to coerce uh, the companies into making decisions or they're really trying to pressure them. You know, there are a few indications that maybe others in the government may have tried to put more pressure on the companies around like certain disinformation topics. I think that is certainly towing the line. There have been a couple examples of members of Congress, uh, you know, sort of demanding certain things. And I think that is, you know, again, uh, you know, borderline, the determination and the determining factor is whether or not there's coercion. You know, if government officials are, are communicating with companies that with information that they found and, you know, or, or that they've seen or that they've discovered that they want Twitter to look at and they want to provide information and then allow Twitter to make its own determination, I think that is the right level of, of engagement. You know, the fear is when it goes over the, over the line, um, but there's been I see no indication that it went over the line. Yeah, I completely agree with this point that at the end of the day, it needs to be the platforms that make these decisions about what's on the platform and, and what's suspended and what's and where they take action. And you really see in the Twitter files then 
pushing back on that very issue. But you also see the value of the pressure, um, especially in the Twitter files when they're talking about, you know, the uh, Russian operations on the platform. There's an entire thread in the Twitter files about Russian about how they first went public with the Russian operations on the platform. And that took pressure from the government and 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 also from other platforms. So it is a balance, but it's a balance that takes voices from the outside to be a part to be part of a good balance. Shoshana, one of the things that was discussed at your event uh, that perhaps should maybe give us pause about the relationship between governments and social platforms was the international context. Um, and certainly we haven't seen these American platforms necessarily always play well in other countries, whether that's India or, or other environments. Yeah. So that's something that's really been interesting to me for a long time. Um, years I've been thinking through this, not to say I'm, I'm the biggest exer- expert. I'd always defer to Center for Democracy and Technology here, especially with their their deep amount of knowledge here. But, you know, if you look at various countries that just have fewer rights than we do in certain ways, it's easier for a government to pressure them. And you have to think about where that line is. Um, and, you know, in America, we might have one view. We might be even almost a little more deferential to government because we feel like a lot of times they're trying to do the right thing. But if you look at like China, you know, where's the line? Like, I think if we look at like Disney as a company, I don't think that they're looking out for the best interests of the people in China when they still operate there. But I think social media that try to are because you can have this incredible democratizing force through um, through social media, like we've seen it all over the world. And it's it's worth it if you restrict, even if the government's like, okay, you can you can have your platform, but you can't talk about this one thing. That's probably still worth it. But these two things, these three, you can't do this. You can't allow these kinds of people on. Then it might be that, you know, social media isn't going to have that right force anymore. And I don't know where the line is. I don't think it's always the same at the same time in the same country. I think that that line moves and there's a lot of considerations and maybe there's not always a, a correct answer every time, but I think it is important to think through it. And part of that is thinking through the standards, the standards we set. So whereas in America, if the FBI has an ongoing investigation and might want on the DL some help from, from Twitter, um, okay, like you, you might think like, oh, you know, they're going after terrorists, they want to make sure. But what if a terrorist in another country is someone advocating for women's rights? Do you still want them to be able to work with those agencies on the DL like that. And I think that's part of the importance of those barriers, that they should be able to maintain it in each country as they see fit and probably set up stronger barriers there. So that way, you know, things require a warrant. Um, Ron Wyden has this great bill saying that uh, government can't get around uh, uh, like third party doctrine issues and um, uh, Fourth Amendment stuff by buying data. Like, I think that's really smart to shore up the law there. But platforms have a huge role here to, to figure out, is it worth it for us to operate? One of the most uh, interesting examples to me, if I recall correctly, it might have been Iran, where um, Clubhouse was operating and they got around filters because it wasn't recorded. Um, the the If I recall correctly, I think also the um, well, recordings might stay in the platform for a bit. It wasn't really accessible to government. They couldn't sit in every room. But the question became, what if they say, OK, you need to keep recordings. You need to give us these recordings. Then it might not be worth it for them to operate, especially with people using their real names, which is one of the incredible things about it. And I think, you know, when we think in the context of American law, we always want them to cooperate with law enforcement far beyond what's legally required. But if we don't want them to do that very rationally in other countries and 
important circumstances, we might want to rethink how we engage with them and make sure that, you know, we're using the law appropriately that like, I think everyone here might agree that like, it's totally cool for law enforcement to be like, hey, we're not telling you to do anything but uh, free speech, but terrorist speech there up to you. It violates your terms, but up to you or um, or scammers. They often start out with fully legal speech. You know, maybe um, the FTC is like, this is what we're seeing. You might want to look out for it up to you. And I think that can be OK, which is why some other legislation gets to me. And I think transparency is the way to go, because that way you can we can kind of all draw the lines together. But I think the international context helps us remember if we want special privileges here, we have to think about how that's going to play as a standard in other countries. Let's talk just for a minute about some of the legislative ideas that have been put forward, uh, including uh, Mike, the House Act that or proposed act that you wrote about the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act put forward by uh, James Comer. Uh, and then Shoshana, uh, Cynthia Loomis talked about uh, the Senate proposal uh, from Mark Rubio and a handful of other Republicans, the preventing restrictions and empowering speakers to enable robust and varied exchanges in online speech or the Preserve Online Speech Act, as it's known. Uh, what do you make of these uh, proposed bits of legislation and do they make sense? I'll, I'll let Mike jump in on a bunch of these, but I think that it's important that like we don't go with the standards that tell platforms what to do. Like if they're telling platforms what to do whatsoever, it's like just not appropriate. If they're like, keep this speech up, take it down, you're already violating First Amendment rights. So like, especially there's been other legislation that's like, oh, conservatives are censored. So their speech has to stay up. What's conservative? Then like some crazy guy can sue and say it was just political speech, even though he's a Nazi, stuff like that. There's none of that has any justification, but transparency um, even, you know, in, in reasonable ways and making sure we're, we're doing it with um, the right way, limiting what what government's able to do um, for kind of setting up legislative guardrails for those First Amendment standards for coercion. Like that's where we should be looking. And it seems like Lummis has some real interest here, which I really appreciate. And Jordan and McMorris uh, have a bill on this. Um, it's, I think it goes a little too far, though. I'm a little concerned about the way they draw the lines. I, I, I appreciate the uh, intent, but I'm just worried about um, that, like the FBI wouldn't be able to say, hey, we're concerned about this, like under their standard or that the FTC wouldn't even be able to say, hey, new scam format. You guys might want to look out for this. And then like even if there's no coercion involved. And I agree with Mike, I think that fine line is the coercion, like feel free to tell platform stuff but no, no coercion, no, no, like, why didn't you do what we said kind of deal? Yeah. And I'm basically going to say the same thing. I mean, my description of the, the Comer uh, McMorris Rogers bill was that it was not totally crazy, which still means it was a little crazy. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was definitely focused on the right thing and that it was saying like, you know, the, the area of focus is the government and what the government can and cannot do, which is, you know, within the, the constitutional limitations, the language in the bill probably goes too far, which is, you know, what Shoshana was saying and that it says that they cannot influence or, uh, or advocate that any third party does something. And again, as Shoshana said, that cuts out a lot of things that we actually normally think government should do. You know, they should be talking about, you know, th there's a new scam there. There are new threats. That, that's what we look to the government for and what we expect the government to do. That's providing information that is useful and helps protect the public. And I think that's valuable as long as there's no coercion that says you have to take this down. You know, if they're providing useful information, 
they should be able to do that. And I fear that the way the bill is written, that it would lead to that and it would lead to some, you know, level of ridiculous lawsuits. I mean, you could definitely see, you know, scammers of some kind then suing over the fact that, you know, the FBI announces there's this new scam going around and then they could sue under this bill. And that seems like a ridiculous and very problematic outcome. So that's my concern. But I do appreciate the fact that unlike many of the other other bills, um, you know, from both sides of the aisle, frankly, that this was focused on actually making sure that the, you know, the government isn't going over the line, though I think the bill itself is is a little bit too broadly worded. And I should just mention that the the Loomis uh, Rubio proposal uh, is much simpler than the uh, House proposal, or at least it's much shorter. Um, it includes essentially one main operative clause around requirements to disclose uh, when government entities uh, request or recommend that a provider of an interactive computer service moderate content, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to, uh, Darren, just come to you on maybe something that you sort of address at the end of your piece in Lawfare, which is just the sort of general sense of distrust in the platforms. The fact that to some extent, that's what's operating here. There's a distrust of the platforms. There's a distrust of these institutions. And somehow that's kind of animating things beyond the actual evidence, certainly that we've seen from the Twitter files or from other sources. Well, I mean, that's actually kind of what's funny to me about this entire conversation. If you if you look at the response to some of the Twitter files threads, critics of the government suddenly want us trusting the platforms then when when the when the government's trying to tell them what to do, you know, suddenly the, the platforms are the good guys. When in fact, you know, everyone involved in this conversation has their own motivations and their own agenda. The platforms and, and the government and 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 me as an independent academic alike, we, we all have our own agenda. Uh, we're, we're right not to entirely trust each other, especially the platforms. You know, they are for-profit entities who, at the end of the day, are, you know, more likely going to do what's best for the bottom line. Even if there are wonderful individual people working at the platforms. And I know that there are, because I've worked with some of them um, with the best of motivations, you know, they, they still answer to the corporate, to the corporation at the end of the day. And, and, and they may not be able to do the right thing because um, they work within a system. So, yeah, I think there is a, a distrust of all of the entities we're talking about in this conversation, especially the platforms, but I don't think that's, that's entirely wrong either. Shoshana, at your event, you had a Facebook executive uh, who'd been working on policy there for years, who also brought in some of the kind of complications to potentially doing more disclosure, more transparency. Can you speak to that? Just the conversations you've had with platform policy executives uh, and the extent to which you know they see a lot of, I, I suppose, nuance or complication in these things. Yeah, and also uh, a lot of my knowledge here is from Mike as well. Um, I learned so much from Mike. So if he's repeating stuff I'm saying, I'm just, it's because I was saying the stuff he's saying and I tend to agree with it. But um, there's a lot of legal barriers, a lot of gag orders or functional gag orders. Um, and when you start to break it down, you start to realize, oh man, like what can we even disclose here? Um, there's also like all levels of complication. So like, let's say just for example, um, there's a Senate office that uh, that is mad that there's a bunch of like stuff against that senator online. And he's like, hey, can you remove this? 
let's let's say it's uh, all trails. Let's just I love using different platforms. And let's say someone's just ranting against the senator on all trails and then they reach out to all trails and, you know, they want to, uh, you know, they they want to disclose this stuff just like in a normative way, not like through government or anything, just they want to increase disclosure. If they say, yeah, this senator asked us to take down negative content about him, then that senator is going to be like, whoa, why do you like call me out here? Like, um, I'm going to keep a closer eye on you now. And there's that incentive, like, who do we want to upset here? So that's just one layer of it. And then there's just, they might have a great relationship with that senator who's being very helpful to them, like not in a uh, corrupt way or anything, but in a really like, we're trying to work through policy things with you. And that could ruin that relationship. Not that it should, I'm not saying that any of this is uh, okay, just that it's reality. Um, So you have so many legal barriers to it. You have relationship barriers like that. And then just scale and sorting, like how do you decide you know, what what category this would go under? How do you uh, disclose it? Do you want uh, a target on the back of the staffer who emailed that maybe at the request of another staffer or at the request of the senator? Um, you know, that that kind of sucks for them. And a lot of times staffers have to do what the other staffers want to. Um, so or what the elected official wants to as well. So then, you know, you have you can kind of like paint a target on those people. And that just kind of is frustrating. And then there's just, there's actual ongoing investigations that might have like orders where you can't talk about it. But there's also, if they disclose something, it might get in the way of an investigation or something serious like that with um, without, uh, you know, any legal order attached, but it could still, you know, get in the way there. Um, and then different countries, like you were saying, you know, um, if in India, they're like, hey, take down this criticism of our president, and then the platform discloses it, oh, man, they are not going to be happy. And maybe they lose the ability to operate there. And it goes back to some of the things I was talking about earlier. So and these are these are just a handful of layers. But it's it's interesting to think about because like, Google um, has a couple of like case studies and one of their most interesting ones to me was a hospital saying, can you please take down this content? And the reason was it violated their copyright. That is not why, like no hospitals, like, oh man, our trademarks in here. Like, oh, you got to take this down. It was clearly something was occurring in the hospital that they didn't want people to see. There's no other reason for it. And like, that was, that kind of shows you the level because governance run hospitals sometimes. There's layers of this of disclosure that get into layers of government you might not even think of. And, uh, and there's relationships to consider. There's, you know, painting a target on their back, on staff's backs that like, you know, there, there's a lot of complication. And then while it might be ideal to have every amount of disclosure, it's also a huge time burden. So it, there's a lot of stuff to think through here. Is there any political alliance to be had between those mostly now on the right who would like to see greater disclosure based on the furor of the Twitter files and those perhaps maybe in the center or academics like yourself, Darren, who are arguing for greater data transparency, greater access to platform information. In some perfect world, could people maybe see these interests as the same or is that too crazy? I mean, I I lost my idealism a long time ago. So, (laughs) yeah, it's probably too crazy. Um, But, you know, looking at it with a level head, certainly there's a common ground here. One reason we do know so much about what happened on Twitter uh, regarding foreign interference from all kinds of sources was because, you know, relative to the other platforms, Twitter has always been very transparent. 
you know, certainly compared to, to, to Meta or Google, extremely transparent. I've had, you know, a closer relationship with some of the folks that work there as a result of that. That caused conflict at various times, but, you know, at least I had the relationship. And so I think that there's there's absolutely a value for transparency for society. And, and I and I and I want to believe some of that transparency had gave value to the platform as well. You know, while the conversations about Twitter weren't always positive for Twitter, at least, you know, there, what's the old saying about there's no such thing as as bad PR that I mean, like people were talking about Twitter and and we're still talking about Twitter and it's not even a top 10 platform in terms of size. It's it's tiny <laughs> compared to all the other major platforms. Um, it punches way above its weight. Um, and one of the reasons we're still talking about it is because it's it's been transparent over the years. So yes, there's definitely value for for transparency. And I think that value goes all the way up. And if and if we can get more people on both sides of the aisle to see that value, I, I think it would be in everyone's best interest. I'll just add in too that I think like with the Twitter files, that's one of the benefits that I think that conservatives really started to see, like, oh wait, we might want transparency here. We might want like limits here. But I think that kind of reshifted their focus in a way that's very helpful for people like me who want them to understand that, like, let, let's say there is like the worst kind of collusion between government and uh, a platform, like where it's really just oppressing speech. That's a Fourth Amendment issue. <laughs> like that's like a that's government. It's not like these platforms that are like, oh, hey, come control us. Like like government's kind of known for for sucking at running things like a lot of companies understand that and want to do their own thing. Um, and it's like it, it, it refocuses the conversation where I think it really needs to be. Um, so I, that's one thing that I think is helpful there. And there are a lot of people on the left who understand it. Like Ted Lieu is often tweeting like platforms can do what they want. I'm going to criticize it, but like in a normative way, not in I'm going to come regulate you way. Ron Wyden as well. And I think there's enough Democrats who get it that we can start to build that coalition around this issue more and then get to other issues like, you know, privacy and stuff like that. I'd like to jump in on the transparency stuff as well. I, I think that transparency as a as a principle and as a concept is really important. And I think most people sort of recognize that. Um, I think it gets really, really challenging and and much more risky when it becomes a government mandate for transparency. And and you begin to open up a sort of Pandora Pandora's box of of questions and and dangers and risks. And there is some irony here in that. You know, Shoshana mentioned investigations in process and things like that. And there was a huge battle, which is now mostly forgotten a few years back, where all of the tech companies sought to reveal just an aggregate number of how many government requests for data, national security letters, and a few other types of government requests for information. So they wanted to reveal things like, in the last quarter, we we received 15 national security letters and no more information than that. And the government went crazy about it and said, you cannot do that. That would reveal you know, some important information that would, would ruin investigations, which I don't see how that's even possible. Um, and so there was this sort of fight between the companies and eventually the Justice Department and most of the tech companies came to an agreement. And, and I think it's an agreement that is 
uh, way too non-transparent that they're not allowed to reveal these things. They're only they're allowed to reveal them much later and in in not as clear a way as possible. And Twitter was actually the somewhat ironically, I guess, was the one company that that continued to fight that battle and actually went to court and claimed that, you know, we as a company have a first and I'm speaking as Twitter, even though I'm not Twitter. I want to clarify that. <laughs> like, you know, they said that, you know, we're a company, we have a First Amendment right to say just how many we're not revealing anything that that will ruin an investigation. We just want to say we received 15 national security letters last quarter and they lost. Uh, and so there is some irony in the idea that now suddenly the same government that was like forcing these companies to be more secretive in the past now suddenly wants them to be a lot more transparent. The other element on the transparency side is that Again, like I agree that the company should be a lot more transparent. I, I like hearing stories where they're working with academics and where they're working with civil society and they're opening up things and they're allowing these investigations to come forth. But when you start to get into the mandated transparency, there's a there's a whole bunch of risks that come with that. You know, I'm not as concerned as Shoshana about like. You know, look, if a senator is is having a staffer contact a company and say this this content is bad, like I actually find that problematic. I actually find like I think the company should reveal that if the government is requesting that kind of thing. But there there are a few different issues, one of which is that some of the transparency requirements that we've seen discussed in various bills and, and certainly in some of the state legislation that's come out really is clearly a content moderation bill in disguise. Because basically what they're saying is you have to reveal this stuff because we know that if you reveal how much content you're taking down or whatever, it will be embarrassing and therefore it will encourage you to take down less content or it will enable some sort of private right of action in which there will be a lawsuit that, again, is is sort of a content moderation bill in disguise, which I think starts to get at the sort of First Amendment issues. So I worry about the bills that mandate transparency. There's also the fact that, you know, Again, like who can actually do that? Who can actually handle that? You know, the tech companies were the ones that pioneered the idea of transparency reporting. Google was the first one that had a transparency report and then everybody started to follow and some other companies, you know, the telcos came many, many years later after people started mocking them. How come Google and Facebook and Twitter are all having transparency reports and AT&T and Verizon aren't? Finally, they started to come out with them. So, you know, these things are happening, but but when the government steps in and says, you have to do this, it starts to get trickier. The one area where I do think we could have a lot, of, you know, we could get more transparency without that problem and allow for, especially on the academic side, would be, you know, some sort of legislation that protects academics that are doing like scraping, you know, to be able to go in and get data or to, you know, as this happened, like build a browser extension and ask people to install this browser extension for the purposes of research that you're going to send to, you know, some university lab, all of the ads that you see or something like that, that kind of transparency. I think making sure that that is allowed would be fantastic because companies like Facebook have have threatened to sue NYU for doing exactly that. Um, and I think that that side is problematic. But as long as there's there's methods there that enable uh, enable the transparency without mandating like transparency reporting that requires them to reveal stuff that that might sort of, you know, then create pressures for them to act in a certain way. You know, I think it's it's kind of a fine line, but but there, there is a way to do it. I'm not sure that anyone is actually going towards the, the sort of safe version of that. I'm glad Mike made that last point about protections for academics, because. 
Per my previous point about all of us having our own agenda, you should probably disregard everything I said about transparency because I definitely have an agenda when it comes to transparency. Uh, as an academic, uh, it only benefits me more than others. <laughs> I, and I, like I, you know, I, and I talk to a lot of academics about this, and and I I totally get where they're coming from, but I do worry that some of the the academic advocacy on this is very biased towards like, of course, they should open up for us. And it's like, yes, like I would love to see the companies providing more data and more access to academics. But when the government is coming in and sort of mandating it, it creates all sorts of risks. And and remember, like the example I always give is that, you know, Cambridge Analytica, which is now held up rightly or wrongly as sort of like the 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 example of of clear abuse of private data. That started as an academic project in which they wanted to access Facebook data for an academic research, which then turned into a giant privacy scandal. And so, you know, I could see a, a, a situation in which academic access leads to more sort of Cambridge Analytica situations. And so you have to have a way to sort of balance that and make sure that you don't have the sort of privacy scandals or other problems or the, the sort of, you know, hidden coercion. That doesn't mean that, you know, that academics should be in the dark or that companies shouldn't be more willing to work with academics. Again, that's why I, I tend to think that, like, certainly decriminalizing scraping or, you know, allowing academics to create browser extensions or other tools that allow them to get access to this information. And that I think companies should be more open to to helping the academics do that sort of thing. I think that really does benefit everyone. Um, but I do worry about some of the proposals that are out there that some of which may even have some some momentum in which the, the government is just saying, well, the companies have to open up to academics because I think there are some risks there. Cambridge Analytica is the worst thing that happened to an entire generation of academic research on social media. It's like it's like Stan, the, the Stanford prison studies ruined a generation of psychology studies uh, by by making it harder for, for future researchers. Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica did it all to us today. I want to add in just quick, too. It's funny because I, I knew some of the people there and uh, I had a friend who once interviewed with them and like I know what they did in other countries is terrible. What they did in America wasn't like super much. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't like they weren't effective at the things that they were claiming they could do. And when my friend had interviewed there, he was telling this was years and years ago. He was telling them um, about his work with like pretty basic Facebook ad targeting. And the guy he was interviewing with was like, whoa, you can do that. And my friend got off the phone and it was like, Shoshana, you will not believe this. And I remember being like, all right, that's less. And so when they came out in the news, I'm like, I have stories. I want to ask one last question of you all, uh, something that I've been thinking about a little bit just in the furor of the last couple of days with the hearing in uh, House Oversight, the uh, Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, et cetera. Almost a little more concerning to me that if the FBI does call Twitter or perhaps the CIA does call Twitter at this point, is there anyone even there to answer the phone if there were a legitimate uh, national security concern? Should we be considering the counterfactual here? I actually had this issue myself recently. I Several weeks ago, I had identified some uh, an inauthentic uh, network of Russian accounts speaking in Russian language. These weren't engaging in English politics, but they were they were talking about the war in Ukraine and they were very pro-Putin. And it took me more than a week to find an actual human at Twitter that I could speak to to shut down those accounts. Using every connection I had, it took me a week to, to get a hold of somebody. And I can only imagine that the government would have 
similar problems? Yeah, um, recently, um, I live a very exciting life and I had a very prominent Nazi target me and he had apparently sent makeup to my office. I know this sounds fake. This is just apparently things that occur in my life. It's not even one that I'd really made fun of much or uh, one that I talked to, but I tweeted about it and I kind of regretted later because while I think it's important to expose anti-Semitism, which is what his letter was about, I just kind of didn't need all the hell, but I got all the anti-Semites coming after me. So I was reporting them as usual. And Twitter often like, you know, does, uh, they won't catch everything I send them. They won't remove it. But this time it was like, they were like handling very little of it. They're like, we reviewed our policies and this was okay. And it was like really well over the line stuff. So I stopped reporting it at a point because I'm like, all right, well, I'm just not going to waste my time. I'll just block them all. Like, that's fine. But that's, you know, it, it kind of speaks to that, you know, I'm not saying Twitter endorses any of it, but I do think like they might not have the resources to really go through it that they once had, which sucks if you don't like Nazis, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, the company is, is is struggling in general with handling a whole bunch of different different things uh, that, that it's it's trying to do. But, you know, what it comes down to is sort of the nature of new Twitter, which is that it depends on what Elon wants to do. So, you know, if if he discovers something that he finds is problematic, then he'll be open to talking to the FBI about it or the CIA about it. You know, I, he's he said a few times before. It's kind of funny because he's always like, oh, you know, I think most of the FBI is is good. I think they're really trying to do good. I I, I believe in, in what they're trying to do, except, you know, when he misinterprets what what they actually did with Twitter, then suddenly it's criminal and the largest constitutional violation ever or something along those lines. So I think that like if something is the kind of thing that will get his attention, then they'll talk to him and, and he'll probably do whatever it is that they want him to do much more readily than, than maybe the old Twitter might have done. But yeah, if it's something that he is not interested in and doesn't think is important, then I think that it sounds like, yes, they will have trouble reaching anyone at the company. And and we've already heard that, you know, there was just a report uh, uh, recently from the New York Times looking at how the company is dealing with uh, child sexual abuse material. And they spoke with officials in Canada and Australia. And the, the Australian official in particular was saying that she has, you know, she has been reaching out to people at Twitter. Everyone she knew is gone. And she's trying to discuss with them how they're handling child sexual abuse material, which is obviously extraordinarily serious and, and a very important issue. And she's getting no response from the company. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, it, you know, and, and that's the an issue that, that Musk has said is priority number one. So, you know, it really depends on how serious he is about it. And that's a very not great way for for a company to to deal with these things. Most other companies, even companies much smaller than Twitter, they have a team that is designed to sort of deal with these kinds of issues as they arise and they have a process. And I don't think Twitter has that anymore. It's entirely just, you know, one man's whims. They they didn't have it before. I mean, that is definitely one thing that the Twitter files have shown us. There was never a button that the government had to press to, to get in to get in contact with the right person at Twitter. There, you know, there were no processes. It was all about personal relationships. I I, 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 I would push back on that a little bit because I think that it did show that there was some process and there were some setups in, in order to do that. But it was about uh, people at the end of the day. I, I, well, to some extent, it's always going to be about well, people at the end of the day. Right? And all those but, people are gone. Yes, all those people are gone. But, you know, Twitter did have a process and they they did have a a system. And, you know, and and what I've heard from other people, including people, you know, uh, who have worked at Twitter in the past on this stuff and people who've worked at other companies like Google, is that often they actually did have a very clear process 
when it came to government requests because they were so concerned about it. It, it, not that they would have a separate process for, for a request that came in from the government because they wanted to make sure that it wasn't crossing the, the line of coercion and that they would you know, review them. And so the lawyers would get involved rather than maybe just the frontline trust and safety staff. So oh, I, I think we're talking about two different things. Yeah, they had an internal process for handling requests, but yeah. you know how, how those requests were made and the initial engagement that was all very personal. Perhaps. I mean, they did they did have a portal system. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, we're, we're getting into areas that sure. I'm not as familiar with. So we didn't even talk about the portal. Uh, but of course, you know, there was on Shoshana's great event, there was a little discussion about, you know, how would you handle it differently if a senator sends a request in through the portal that is perhaps related to an, uh, a threat against the a member of their own family or against themselves, would that end up being something that would need to be disclosed? There's so much complexity here. Uh, we've run out of time. Uh, you know, in the Musk or MAGA cinematic universe, I'm sure we'll continue to see quite a lot of uh, hyperbole on these issues. Uh, but I appreciate you all for uh, having a, a more reality based conversation and evidence based conversation today. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. That was fun. Thank you. Yeah, I really like this. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Press. To grab a shovel and pick up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.